All right, welcome to another episode of Middle School Music. I'm one of your hosts, Farhan Lalji, and with me is, as always, is Dario Duet. Dario, how are you doing this morning? Hey, Farhan. I'm, I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, thanks. We are, I've lost track of days, so I won't even say what day we are in terms of the quarantine and the self-isolation piece, but we are hopefully seeing some light. Uh, and, and I think we're, we're seeing that kind of reflected in, in the music sector as well, aren't we? Hundred percent. It's been uh, it's been a pretty cool period, actually. I think uh, even just you know our past two episodes covering the coronavirus effects, uh, we're starting to see almost some contrarian trends coming through over the past week um, when it comes to both uh, content distribution um, and and artist rollout and development. Yeah. So I think this episode we're going to spend some time talking about kind of how artists are monetizing or releasing music, how Spotify is handling some of the challenges with, with the current situation. And then I think we're going to spend some time talking about kind of charity releases, charity singles, and how musicians are trying to kind of give back as well. So hopefully it should be a pretty interesting episode for people. Well, let's kick off then. Let's do it. So Daria, you've been kind of researching and doing some kind of reviews around kind of how Spotify and how artists are uh, addressing kind of the, the challenges with releasing music. Do you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, so it's actually pretty interesting because if you listen to, to last, well, our last episode, we spoke about how the consumption of new music has dropped and uh, listeners are typically um, pulling up old catalogs. Now that's a trend which, I mean, I guess, you know, I've, I've, done, I've been doing that too. But what I've noticed actually is that this time, I think maybe that was a bit preemptive. Let me put it that way. And I think it's because, you know, everyone was adjusting to this new norm. The lockdown periods have significantly extended. Productivity was very volatile. Artists didn't really know what to do. You know, they basically, you, know, you cut off the head of the snake there. You know, where do you monetize? You can't perform. Your album rollouts are, are basically thrown up in the air, big album releases postponed, tours have to be postponed, people have to be refunded. And so we started to see kind of new music very slowly trickle through. You know, The Weeknd and Dua Lipa have really done well, but they are, their albums almost released just prior to lockdown. And a big Sean was planning on re- releasing his album, and, and that's even gone a bit quiet. But then you find artists such as MGK and g Easy who've actually taken a different approach uh, to, to, to the markets. Let's let's pause on that for a little bit because I think there's some interesting points there, even just on like the artists that did release, right? I mean, like Dua Lipa's hand was a bit forced, right? Because her album was leaked um, before she she did the release, and so I don't think they had much of a choice yeah. to actually release the music. And then at the same time, you've got artists like John Legend that had kind of scheduled releases, but I think kind of the final mixes and everything else have kind of made it difficult um, to actually release music and, and to get kind of the mixing done or, or whatever else as well, right? So it's interesting to see how artists who maybe had their albums all locked down right before the isolation period um, are kind of either being forced to or are making the decision to release and artists that maybe had a release date sometime in the first month or so in March or early April have held off actually releasing their music. But there are some really interesting trends around kind of how, I think you were gonna talk about MGK and others are, are using this time to, to maybe kind of release other types, whether of new music rather than actually new, you know, kind of totally new creative stuff, but maybe kind of leveraging stuff that's already out there. Yeah, so I think it's really about uh, being comfortable with navigating with the, the 
space and you know some more legacy artists might find the new platforms the new content platforms quite challenging someone like mgk uh, has really capitalized on the opportunity uh, his uh, lockdown sessions where he takes samples of existing songs and actually uh, builds new tracks out of them something which you can't monetize off necessarily hmm. but it creates uh, a lot of interest it's, in my opinion you know i've been extremely engaged with them uh, he's really developed as an artist you find he's used samples from the likes of Shawn Mendes, uh, Paris, Nirvana, Avril Lavigne with Skater Boy, Juice World, uh, and he's even um, uh, kind of done a cover which was approved and is actually on Spotify of Paramore's Misery Business with Travis Barker. So his uh, level of engagement, he's bringing other celebrities in. He got Marilyn Manson to suggest him to do a cover of Rihanna's Love on the Brain. And this has all been, in my opinion, an effective kind of marketing distribution distribution strategy um, as the lead up to his uh, first release of his new pop punk album, Tickets to My Downfall, a song called yeah, so, Valentine. So we saw this with uh, Tory Lanez, right? Like Tory Lanez kind of doing yeah. his, his Chicks tape yeah. where, where he kind of takes kind of samples of 90s and early 2000s R&B tracks and kind of re-engineers them, not necessarily as covers, but kind of trying to take a, a hot line and turn it into a hot song, as my friend T-Pain would say. Right? <laughs> so, so, you know, we saw that with him kind of, and then releasing a new album off the back of kind of Chick's tape. You know, I think he had that album. I think the, the new Toronto 3 um, was an album he released earlier this year, which was more kind of new yeah. music, but yeah. he kind of seeded, you know, hey, Tory Lanez is still here with that kind of Chick's tape music. And then you see kind of the new release. And it sounds like MGK might be doing something similar in that light. Completely. And, and you know, in Tory Lane's case, he did that because he was having a kind of internal uh, issues with Interscope. And uh, as soon as that was done, boom, released the album. But then you find the other side of the... So MGK has decided to go more towards the pop punk space. So his new, his new song, Bloody Valentine, is very reminiscent of the Ataris in this diary. Mm -hmm. And if you remember that track, quite old, uh, kind of brings back the Blink-182 Good Charlotte days. And there's a playlist on Spotify which shows his inspiration. I think it's a great gap in the market for that type of music. Mm -hmm. and if, you can, if, you can, if you can do it as a single artist as opposed to a band of five, it makes more sense when it comes to financials. But then you've got another angle to this, right? So you take the likes of G-Eazy, who's done a cover of Radiohead and a cover of The Beatles, and then releases a new track today featuring Jack Harlow. But what I find interesting as a trend uh, from this perspective is that, you know, historically when artists were signed to big labels, they would release an album, take someone like Madonna. I mean, I don't know why the Red Hot Chili Peppers keeps, keeps popping to mind. I think that the most recent release, they took creative gambles with the label. It didn't pay off and the repercussions are severe, not only in terms of your longevity as an artist, um, the marketing machine that the label's willing to put behind you, um, and the list goes on. But these new platforms and this time period actually allows and encourages people to experiment with their artistic flow and inevitably either evolve as an artist or potentially change direction. Fascinating. I mean, it is, it is really interesting. And I think we're just at the start of that evolution, right? Because I think it's really interesting to release new music that you might not be able to monetize in the same way from a creative you know, kind of credits perspective as yeah. the sole writer or, you know, kind of having that monetization 
on singles or your kind of radio play or whatever it might be, right? You're kind of gearing up for streaming, but then does it unlock kind of other channels, right? Like, I mean, um, does it unlock the capability for you to then monetize on other gaming channels or other video channels or live concert streaming and stuff like that? Because I wonder if, you know, they're seeding this content in order to build enough of a catalog that will get people interested to kind of hear them live you know, even if it is kind of via a streaming channel, even if it is via a gaming channel, even if it is via Twitch or via kind of Fortnite, right? Like, I wonder if having relevant new-ish music, even if you're not monetizing that music itself from a traditional royalties perspective, is, is kind of the game plan for some of these artists. Well, it's a good point you raise because we saw the likes of Travis Scott really take advantage of the gaming platform with his Fortnite, was Fortnite tour, his Fortnite release tour, um, you know, he had 12.3 million Fortnite players join in on the concert and 28 million gamers overall, you know, through the streaming services, uh, you know, watching this performance, which from, from what I can understand, and, and, you know, I didn't tune in live, but, you know, I've seen it. Uh, the, the Fortnite developers have really created this experience, uh, which is crazy. But, but the music isn't actually performed live by Travis Scott. It's more just a almost a playlist in its essence. Um, but the, the cross-selling opportunities are massive. Well, that's really interesting, right? Like, I mean, when you think about, you know, your, your DJ um, music kind of catalog and how they actually perform, whether it's in, you know, kind of clubs in Vegas or whether it's at festivals or, you know, on, on that side, right? It's very similar in terms of they know kind of what songs they're going to play. And it's a little bit easier for them to kind of stand in front and kind of have their turntables and go from song to song. I think, you know, in an instance like with Travis, like having to, to have this kind of pre-prepared soundtrack, doing it, you know, ahead of time, mixing it, having it ready, and then almost like launching a mixtape. But instead of launching a mixtape, it's a live engagement of that event. It's really interesting to see how that's kind of taken some of the stuff we've seen historically in terms of live concerts, taken some of the stuff we've seen in terms of soundtracks, right, and performances and merged it into this almost new category of, you know, a soundtrack to live, right? They're yeah. preparing the soundtrack, but hey, it's going to be only released at this point in time. So instead of being in a movie theater, right, and enjoying kind of media and having the soundtrack and then being able to go and purchase the soundtrack, it's almost like that order has been flipped, right? You kind of prepare the music, you have the live event, and then you have the follow-on where people might want to kind of keep engaging with that as well. It's interesting to see how these medias are meshing because I think medias have meshed before, right? Where you've had music with soundtrack movies. And now what you're seeing is kind of the live engagement of gamers with a similar kind of soundtrack model. I like that perspective because one of my biggest pet peeves was that, well, actually, all right. So you take the year 2002, 2003, the sweet spot, you know, of, of, of at least in my opinion, the hip hop industry and, and before piracy really took over, we moved on to DSPs. Uh, you know, there were a lot of great movie soundtracks that were coming out. And um, the problem is that a lot of the time, people who aren't necessarily as switched on in the industry, they don't find those tracks. You'll find a great track from a specific artist. Say, like, what, did Jay-Z really, what the, is that a new Jay-Z song? Type of thing. And the, the movies have tried to do that again. I know Fast and the Furious always tries to release its new soundtrack. Eminem did it with Southpaw, um, etc. But unfortunately, again, I guess because of this influx of content, it's very difficult to find those things. And uh, this is a new medium, as you say, or a new way of actually being able to capitalize on that. 
um, and for artists to put out new music in that way, but it becomes recognized new music, which they can actually uh, monetize and build a further reputation of, uh, as opposed to just being something that gets lost in the netherworld as, you know, something that was part of, of movie X. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, especially with new artists, right? Like soundtracks used to be a great way for new artists to kind of come out and get discovered. I mean, one of my all-time favorites, you mentioned kind of the, the rap kind of heyday. One of my all-time favorite MCs is the Notorious Big, right? And for Big you know, kind of party and bullshit was his track that appeared on the Who's the Man soundtrack in 1993, right? And that was his first solo track, and it was on a soundtrack. And actually what happened, the interesting story and how, you know, I'm listening to uh, a podcast right now on the Biggie and Pac murders. Um, And it's really interesting to see that that track was actually what got Tupac interested in Biggie. Because he he heard that track. And then when Biggie was out in LA, they got to get together and Pac told him, you know, I've been listening to Party and Bullshit. And I think that's really great. So it was really interesting to kind of see how your kind of artists historically were trying to establish themselves on soundtracks and those soundtracks would be kind of then leveraged in the media sector from a movie perspective. And now you're seeing that kind of flip, right? That it's not the new artist that's trying to kind of get discovered this way. It's the more established artists that are providing the soundtracks um, for the gaming industry. The gaming industry is definitely slept on. And I think you're finding even in the social media space, the likes of TikTok, I mean, we speak about this daily, um, are, are massive or have a massive impact on the music industry and distribution moving forward. Something which, you know, I guess the, the greater question is, does COVID accelerate the decay of the record label and, and the significance of the label overall? But that's something we can address <laughs> another well, time. You know, the, the, you know, speaking of the decay of the, the label, right, and how artists are monetizing, I mean, another kind of interesting thing that's happened recently is Spotify releasing their capability to donate directly to the artist, yes. right? So now is the donation directly to the artist another way for the artist to kind of usurp the label? Well, it's a good point. And I think, you know, we, historically we've seen kind of crowdfunding and the tip economy and other fan funding mechanisms very, very popular in the East or in China. Uh, it's uh, crazy that it took something like COVID to nudge some, someone like Spotify or DSP like Spotify to inevitably start thinking in this way, um, you know? And, and yeah, I think it's going to set precedent moving forward. And, you know, yeah. we're really that- So our, our boss, Sean Park, has, has said this quote on a webinar recently, where um, it's a quote by Lenin around how, and I used it in a webinar myself yesterday, around there are, you know, kind of decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen, right? And it almost feels that way, right? Where the music industry was so slow, right? And it took literally decades for something like Spotify to become kind of the normal way for people to listen to music. And now with COVID, we're kind of seeing this acceleration of digital trends, right? when it comes to kind of the merging of fintech with music, right? That whole thing around kind of paying artists directly, whether it's through the cash app or GoFundMe's or PayPal or whatever it is, right? That kind of capability should have existed years and years ago, right? Because PayPal is not new, Spotify is not new. Why did these things not come together? And probably a lot of it has to do with some of the restrictions from, you know, the stakeholders in Spotify in terms of the labels themselves. Right now, as the labels are struggling, the artists are struggling, there's no real alternatives. It's like, well, hey, musicians are looking for another way to monetize. 
now becomes the right time to launch this kind of integration of fintech into a platform like Spotify. Yeah, completely. I think that building out tech fin companies in the West and, and, and kind of increasing exposure of that financial services layer within that stack is, 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 is great. And I think it, um, it ruffles the feathers of, of labels even further because, you know, historically, and, and yeah, this is a generalization here, but, you know, artists were taken advantage of by labels. Yeah. or by people with the financial know-how in the industry and inevitably we're working for free. And that's, well, will now no longer be the case. And, you know, instead of having to build these uh, or find nuances or gaps or loopholes in your record deal or your distribution deal, you know, yes, we have the likes of SoundCloud or whatever, but that aside, we're, you know, to your point, focusing on established artists. And it's interesting to see more and more established artists who are well accustomed to label deals, well accustomed to having a strong catalog, have existed or had relationships with a variety of labels, are actually turning to these alternative means and they look like they can and will be viable moving forward. I think yeah. that the, the, the question I have for you though mm-hmm. is the, how sticky live concerts will be in the long run. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's really, I mean, and that kind of takes us to a good point to kind of talk about what we're seeing in terms of kind of like concerts um, from a streaming perspective, right? Like, I mean, I think, you know, for the next couple of years, there's going to be the governmental and societal restrictions around these kind of mass gatherings, right? So, you know, kind of being six feet or being two meters apart from people, you know, just doesn't work in a concert venue, (laughs) Right. So, you know, kind of how long are those, some of those restrictions going to be in place is going to heavily impact the amount of people that can actually be used to monetize a, a traditional kind of concert like um, strategy. Now, that being said, if you have omnichannel, right, where you have some live events where you have more intimate, well, I say intimate, but people still kind of keeping apart and then maybe streaming some of that as well as kind of the pure streaming side of things. I wonder if that's going to be the future that enables these artists to kind of still succeed from performing, you know, in air quotes live, right? Because what they do is they say, okay, I can't have more than whatever, a couple hundred people in this venue that's supposed to seat thousands, right? So how do I kind of make this work? Well, I'm just going to keep it very intimate. You know, people will still have to kind of, I guess, kind of stay apart. And then at the same time, I'm going to broadcast this or I'm going to build this into a soundtrack, you know, the live versions of this. To be honest, I don't really know. And I think that's why having lots of different ways to monetize is really, really important. And I don't think Spotify could have done it as a private company with the labels as direct kind of shareholders. I think it becomes a lot easier as a publicly traded company that's trying to kind of monetize in a different way now, right? Because you've got the advertising revenue, you've got, of course, the subscription revenue making up the bulk of it, still not even getting close to kind of breaking even. But at the same time, if you can kind of integrate the payment side and now take a percentage of those payments that people make directly to the artist, that might be another way for them to monetize. As yeah, a, well, well it, it's a great point. Um, you know, we always talk about or wouldn't say always, but you and I tend to offline discuss how, how eyeballs, sorry, eyeballs are easier to monetize than ears. Yeah. And it's an increasingly difficult uh, or complex problem for the industry to, to try and solve. Now, irrespective of the financial flows and who makes the money at the end of the day, um, I think the importance, which is something that Daniel Eck 
is the CEO of Spotify, for those who don't know, highlighted at the end of their Q1 earnings report, which came out this week, is that their value to price ratio is off the charts. Now, what I mean by that is that you're paying $9.99, you know, whether it be pounds or dollars, whatever it may be, and you're getting more than an hour of engagement per day per user. And if you look at like song length, which nowadays sits between two to three and a half minutes max, right, that's a lot of engagement, right? In, in the context of this type of medium, like you, you, can't, you can't compare it to like to Netflix where a show is anyway up to an hour or plus. Uh, but, but point being is if people are, 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 are consuming that much music on a daily basis or audio content, you know, it's a perfect time to really, to really build on that. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think like in the same way that monetizing years has kind of like accelerated a little bit, you know, the eyeball monetization, although like people are spending a lot more attention there, there's probably a lot of innovation that people like Netflix have had in the pipeline that they've been hesitant to roll out at this time. Right. When you think about our, our other innovations that they accelerate, right. So the things like watching together, the Netflix party thing, you know, I'm guaranteeing you that was not in their roadmap for this quickly, right? But kind of seeing how things change from a you know isolation perspective means you accelerate that. And then on the flip side, actually accelerated viewing was something that they had been testing and launched in a couple of markets where you could watch it like one and a half times speed. Now, all of a sudden, that doesn't become as much of a priority, right? Because you want people to be engaged longer. People are isolating. They actually need that kind of content. Whereas on the ear side, Right, the monetization piece, some of the other innovations, they're kind of showing that actually to the P, P price value ratio, right, that's making a lot more importance. So they can kind of accelerate some of these innovations and become more monetizable um, as well and have value on the bottom line of a platform like Spotify and for the artists. And that goes to Daniel X's point around kind of how artists are possibly missing a trick here, right? By not actually releasing music, they're missing a window where they can actually hopefully monetize in a different way. I just don't think artists want to be that experiment at this time, right? They're sticking to what they know in terms of concerts, in terms of even streaming, where they can say, yeah, here's a soundtrack and I'll take my check. Thank you, please. Um, the other thing is like traditionally, right? Artists have been, as you mentioned earlier, really taken advantage of, right? Like you get a contract and you get a cash advance. And what a lot of people don't understand is for the artist, that cash is basically a loan against production and against marketing. Right. So, yes, you get this cash bonus, but then you have to take that back and use that for studio time. You have to use that for marketing. You have to use that for the promotions. And if your your album does not make money, you end up in the hole as well. And I think this kind of direct monetization as the costs come down to produce means that artists could kind of monetize and almost have a more to, to use kind of financial terms, EBITDA positive kind of view of, of making music. Yeah, I, I love that approach. I think you even find some artists don't even understand that, which is why they blow it all on stupid stuff. And at the end of the day, they're in trouble. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I one thing, though, on the contrarian uh, kind of approach to, to releasing music at this time, I think, you know, I think it's great that artists are experimenting. And, and you know, if I was an artist, I would put music out there. I think the thing is, though, is that you've got a lot of artists who don't want to put music out there because they'll be faced, they'll face increased scrutiny. And the quality of music, again, the personal opinion is, is not necessarily the same as, was, as what it was. People have become a bit more scrappy in, in the stuff that they're doing. Um, and so, you know, he, 
just to, to kind of protect your reputation and your downside, you don't really want to release the music. You almost want to kind of just wait and see how things go. And maybe you'll start to see now, which I actually kind of feel like we have, and probably it's a good segue into that. Look at New Music Friday, look at your release radar. All of a sudden this week, there are quite a few new tracks and, and, and interesting releases coming from, from some of the more prominent girls and guys in the, in the space. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of the, the two by two matrix is like how much money do they actually have Right, like, and then how experimental are they, right? And you can go to go low high in those two by two matrix, right? So you've got like in the one box, you'll have artists that don't have a lot of music at, or don't have a lot of cash in the bank that haven't kind of capitalized their career yet. Maybe they're early in their careers and aren't very experimental. Like that box in the matrix is gonna suffer highly, right? Yeah. Because if you're not doing it, experimenting, putting music out, building your fan base right now, what the F are you doing? Right. And then you've got people without a lot of capital in the bank who are going to be highly experimental. And it'll be interesting to see how the, that group kind of monetizes. I think you were mentioning that you're kind of experimenting with new artists and, and we can kind of merge into New Music Friday, you know, and, and you can kind of see how you're experimenting, you're hearing new music, you're hearing new artists. And those artists are releasing new music and good for them, because if you don't have a back catalog, now's as good a time as any as to actually produce that kind of catalog. And then you've got your artists who have a lot of money in the bank and aren't going to be very experimental. And I'm looking at, you know, some of the older artists, maybe your Elton Johns and some of the others mm -hmm. who are planning to do tours. Right. And now what do you do? Right. If you, I mean, yeah, sure. You have a huge back catalog, but you're not monetizing that as well anymore. You were thinking about doing one last kind of show. You're probably going to do a, a movie or a documentary around that show. And now that's probably out the window or shelved. Right. And if you're not experimenting with new channels, right, how do you monetize any new music or even your back catalog? And then you've got artists like Drake, right, who've released. I have no idea because I haven't listened to it yet, but we heard, you know, we have, but... we've, heard, we've heard the news that he's released this mixtape out and, you know, he's he's got a back catalog. Right. But it probably wasn't being monetized as much. He can't kind of tour. So it's interesting to hear, and I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this. Do you feel like it's actual new music or do you think it's stuff that he was sitting on that he's kind of releasing to experiment with? It's not album quality. I think that's why he calls it a mixtape. Compared to his previous mixtape, uh, which he released, I think, what, 2017? Yeah. 2016. Um, it's, it's pretty poor, I think. But, you know, Drake likes to experiment with new styles. So, again, props to him. And it's, it's got a, a, you know, his first tra track is featuring Playboy Cardi. So it's a different type of type of structure. Um, I think it's music that was sat on. I know that there were a good couple of leaks over the past few weeks. And he's probably just trying to get the music out there. It's probably, you know, at, at 50 or 70% of what he would normally expect to, to put out. So he's happy or comfortable to do so. Also, I guess no skin off his back. He's the biggest artist in the world. So what difference does it make? Um, you know, then you get guys like the Rolling Stones who they're like freaks. I mean, they've just released a track which they recorded remotely and they're performing. And I mean, it's amazing. That's absolutely true, right? So you don't want to kind of be ageist and think that actually, you know, the, the older artists like Elton John are the ones that don't experiment because I think the point of Red the Rolling Stones is a great one, right? Like here you've got a bunch of 70-year-old rock stars doing kind of, um, you're kind of having, being in separate locations, isolating and releasing music. That's incredible, right? And that's the kind of artist I'm talking about that has a huge back catalog and is still kind of experimenting and putting out new music. Completely. So talking on new music, uh, yeah. what are you listening to at the moment? So, um, you know, to be honest, like, and I think we've spoken about this previously, there wasn't a lot of great new music. No. So I was kind of digging into 
I was listening to a lot of like 90s hip hop, um, a lot of early 2000s stuff. We, we still are doing our family playlist Good. Uh, every week where everybody puts in 10 songs. Um, and I went even further back to uh, the 60s and 70s. I, I picked up a couple of tracks from like the foundations, uh, Build Me Up Buttercup. And I, I had some George Michael and Aretha Franklin uh, in there alongside uh, some of the, the hip hop stuff like the uh, Lords of the Underground and, and others uh, like that. Actually, you know, a track that I've been, a new-ish track that I have been kind of listening to um, uh, a, a bit is the Run the Jewels track, Ooh La La. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have been, uh, that one is a, a new-ish. I mean, I think it's now uh, over a month since it was released, but it's one that had a slow burn for me. Um, and, and I really kind of loved Greg Nice from back in his 90s hip hop days and DJ Premier is, is a favorite of mine. Um, so for the two of them to kind of mix with Run the Jewels, um, that track has been getting a lot of play uh, in my house. What about you? Um, yeah, a lot. I mean, I went through this phase, I was listening to like rock and metal and throwback pop punk stuff and uh, you know, hip hop wise. I really like the baby's voice. I know he gets like criticized for his flow. Like, yeah, I, I've been listening to the baby. I've been listening to pop smoke. Uh, you know, he reminds me of like a new age 50 cent. Uh, his voice is super deep. It's got dr like drill esque um, kind of uh, tones coming through. Um, super interesting uh, to, to, to listen to his album, which, you know, I guess it's funny because he, he was killed unfortunately. And uh you know, I wouldn't have listened to it before that. This tends to always happen, these posthumous kind of releases. Um, listening to, to Ian Dior, um, he's got a track with Travis Barker, Machine Gun Kelly, um, mm. which is, again, I almost feel like there's this new niche that's emerging, which is like taking things back to pop punk because you've seen Machine Gun Kelly's Bloody Valentine release today, which I really enjoy this new style. It's also, I can tell, spend a lot of time in development of his voice. Um, and his artistic flow, which is which is coming through, is a lot of personal growth. I almost feel like that whole Eminem beef, which um, uh, I would obviously support Eminem, uh, as you know, uh, was was just staged by Interscope because they're both on Interscope. Uh, you know, Diddy, Bad Boy, MGK, Jimmy Iovine, Dre, um, Eminem, and now Diddy and Dre are going to do an Instagram Live battle. Like, hmm, kind of weird. Uh, Man, I could talk for, for, for ages in terms of new music, so I don't want to kind of bore you. But, but um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll just pause there. <laughs> no, I, I think it is nice to kind of see the emergence of more artists releasing new tracks, even if they are kind of tracks that have been sat on for a while. I think, you know, at this time, we kind of need as much new music as we can get uh, to keep us interested, even with kind of decades of back catalog stuff for us to, to check out as well. Um, so it is nice to see kind of more artists releasing releasing new music uh, and, and for us to, to experiment and listen to new artists um, as well. I'll say one thing to kind of close out is artists would complain about leak culture. To get rid of leak culture, just do what Drake's done. Like release the stuff. At this time, who cares? You want to make money. No one's got anything else better to do but listen to music. Well, I guess. So, so, so do it. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, we've been kind of talking about it since the beginning of this year about new Kendrick, right? And I think like it'll be interesting to see how he handles um, the release of, of new music. You know, he's yeah. kind of built this whole kind of following and trying to do something digitally uh, that kind of has multi-channels kind of going. And it'll be interesting to see if he kind of follows through on that. And what other artists, you know, across the board who've like 
you know, from your John Legends to your, you know, Rolling Stones to, to others, right? Like what, what people do at this time. Completely. Completely. Good stuff, man. Well, I think that's been a great episode. Um, you know, I think we are continuing, like we we're saying, producing content uh, in this crazy time and, and we'll continue to do that. We've got some, some more tricks up our sleeves for the following week. So, so stay tuned. Um, and thanks, thanks everyone for, for continuing to listen. Uh, this has been uh, Middle School Music. You can find us on Twitter at MDLSKL underscore music. You can find me on Twitter at Farhan Balji. And Dario, where can the good listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter on at Dario underscore debit with W. Great stuff. Well, thanks again, and we'll catch you next time. Ciao. Oh, ciao.